right, so the book of Proverbs, chapter one. Today, of course, is June 1st, so some of you guys know why I chose Proverbs chapter one. Some of you guys probably already read this this morning. So let me jump in here and um, at least get down here to the first seven verses or so. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple and to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, so as I was praying about what to share, uh, I came across this verse, and um, it stuck out to me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So I wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. And um, just Proverbs talks a lot about wisdom and knowledge. And of course, the day and age that we live in, there's more knowledge, more information than there's ever been. Um, and you can come up with your own conclusion if there's more wisdom than there's ever been. Uh, but the need for wisdom is certainly at the top of the list. So we know that Paul said of the last days to Timothy that they're going to be perilous. They're going to be dangerous. They're going to need your full attention, wisdom to walk through the last days. And we know what he said to the church in Ephesus there. He said, redeem the time, walk wisely because the days are evil. Be careful. Walk circumspectly because the days are evil. So uh, important that we think through what wisdom is, what knowledge is, and how the fear of the Lord uh, plays into those things. So wisdom, very simply, is just the right application of knowledge. So we, knowledge is all the information, all the things we get. Wisdom is applying those things in a correct way. Uh, one of the things that Jesus said is wisdom is justified of her children, which means that sometimes you make a decision and the wisdom in that decision isn't always seen until later on. So if you've got young kids, hang in there, right? As Pastor Mike was saying on Sunday, do what you know the Lord wants you to do and that wisdom will be shown out years from now in their lives as they get older. Uh, think about Noah, right? The Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness and building his boat for 120 years before the rains came. People thought he was crazy for 120 years until all of a sudden in one afternoon, the wisdom of Noah was all of a sudden uh, very obvious. So uh, we live in that age where we need wisdom and we need the right use of the knowledge that we have. Thankfully, there's a lot of knowledge around. We need to know how to use it wisely. So when you look at these first couple of verses here, you see um, wisdom, you see instruction, you see understanding, uh, instruction again in verse 3, wisdom, prudence in verse 4, discretion in verse 4, uh, learning in verse 5, understanding. So uh, all of those things, the book of Proverbs wants us to be wise. It wants us to understand. It wants us to know what God has for us. I think it's interesting in verse 3, it says, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. And one of the things we're going to be talking about just a little bit is this beginning of knowledge. Um, you could basically say this is our Christian worldview. 
right? If you were here when Dr. Lyle was here, he loves to talk about this. A worldview is just simply how you view the world. Everybody looks at the same world, the same facts, the same geography, uh, everything, but how you view that and the conclusions you come to, that is your worldview. So with the guys recently, we took them through uh, the seven basic questions of a Christian worldview, but you could really sum it up into three. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Right? You pretty much have to answer those three questions to really have a good handle on life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Right? And there's a couple other sub-questions in there, but if you get those three correct, uh, you're going to be in good shape. Uh, and you have to do it in a way that's rational. So let me give you an example of that here. He says justice, judgment, and equity. Now, from a Christian worldview, we look at those three words, justice, judgment, and equity, and we understand that we believe in those things because there is a just and equitable God who is the judge, and there should be a standard in the world. Now, we know that sin has come and it's messed it up, but ultimately the Lord's going to come back, and one of the things that the millennium is going to be known for is justice and righteousness, that the Lord is going to judge from Jerusalem. And the, the thing that the Bible says over and over about that thousand-year period is that justice and righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord will flow. So as a Christian, because we believe that we were created in God's image, that he is the ultimate standard of right and wrong, it's very rational for us to believe in things like justice and judgment and equity or equality, those sorts of things, right? But there's lots of other people in the world that would say they want all of those things, right? But is it rational? If we all of a sudden just came here and we randomly evolved uh, with no direct guide or no, uh, no hand over it, would it make sense that we would believe that there should be justice for all? You can believe it, you just don't have a very good foundation for it. If you believe that God created everything, and has a plan for everything, then you can believe that justice has a very solid foundation. So that's just an example of um, something that a, a Christian worldview can just sort of catch. So where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? So the brings us to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, no doubt, if you've been sitting here for quite a while, we've heard Pastor Joe talk about this, that fear... When we hear that word, there's several different uh, things that it makes us think. Um, and so when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, fear might not be the best translation. Um, because when we think of fear, we think of something that makes us afraid. We think of uh, something that is probably not what the Bible says here. So some people try to give us some other synonyms that might be better. Awe, to be in awe of something, to reverence something. Uh, to respond to something intensely, right? So if you're fearful, it's probably why the, the translators here use fearful. If you respond to something intensely, that's the idea. It's not the idea of something soft or muted or casual. The fear of the Lord gives the idea of something that's strong or intense. Now, here's one suggestion I might give to you. This is just sort of free advice, as Pastor Joe would say. Uh, the book of Proverbs is great. So if on any given day you're not sure what to read, you just think, all right, it's June 1st, let me read Proverbs chapter 1. You can read about the fear of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 1, but you probably can't get to the depth of it. Uh, and let me explain why here in a second. 
Uh, without the New Testament, you're really not going to get to the depth of the fear of the Lord. But let's just think about where we are right now in relationship to that as a culture. So we live right now in the midst of a world that is very fearful. Isn't that interesting? Very anxious. Very um, just it's the world that we live in has become very anxious. If it was 20 years ago, it was 9-11, it was terrorism. All the time it's weather, right? Uh, every little storm now, they'll give you 24 hours of um, everything you need to prepare for. And then what happens? Half the time it doesn't even come true, right? And then you realize, all right, wait a second. How much money did they just sell in advertising for me to log on 10 times to the app to see exactly what percentage of, and this is going to happen, and you just realize you got duped. But pandemics, political turmoil, all of these things, we live in a world that is as anxious and as fearful as ever. And the media generates fear uh, to make money, uh, and the more information that we have. Now, isn't that interesting? You might think the more information we have, the less we need to worry. Has that proven out? No. In fact, it's the opposite. The more information we have, the more worried people have become. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that comes back to money again. People selling advertising, people making money off of fear. Here's the other interesting thing. If you think of world history, we are probably safer today than ever before, and yet we're more anxious. So you think about terrorism, at least in our country, we have the strongest military we've ever had, we have the strongest intelligence we've ever had. Weather, we have the strongest radars we've ever had, we have the strongest uh, pre-warning systems we've ever had. Pandemics, we have the best medicine we've ever had, we've had the, we have the best antibiotics we've ever had. All of those things, and yet, our culture, though it's in a sense safer than it's ever been, is more anxious and more fearful than it's ever been. And in case you don't have anything else to worry about, now there's FOMO, the fear of missing out. So if you're not actually scared of something, you could be scared of something that hasn't actually happened and you might miss it. So just in case you've got a handle on terrorism, weather, pandemics, and politics, uh, now you have FOMO, the fear in case you missed out on something that you didn't get to do. Now, why is that happening in our country right now in this part of history? I would say this. Maybe, again, I wouldn't write a book on this, but my hypothesis would be that prosperity causes people to be more risk adverse. When you have a lot, you don't want to lose it. And right now, in our country, we have a lot. I spent a couple weeks last summer over in Kenya, and it was very eye-opening for me, uh, really changed a lot of things in my thinking. And you come back and you realize, wow, we have a lot. And then you realize, what would happen if we lose that? And it causes people to be more fearful. The more someone has, the more risk and loss averse they become. So the fear of God is something that can rein in that anxiety and that fear. But when we lose the fear of God, what grows? That anxiety. People become fearful. So you could make the argument that in our country in the last 50 years, our fear of God has gone down. And what's happened to the anxiety and fear? It's gone up, right? It's an interesting parallel. And now things like personal health and climate health have taken on this divine ultimate meaning. Like it's the ultimate thing now. We have to have our health and we have to have the climate. And if we don't, that's what happens. When you lose the fear of God, what you have left with is the physical. And so people now are giving the ultimate importance to 
their physical health and the, the climate, the environment, all of those sorts of things, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, I'm just saying it's not the ultimate thing. And people's fear is out of whack. Now here's what's interesting, which I didn't realize, is guys back in the 1800, famous atheists like Bertrand Russell, guys like that, part of their spiel was that as science and atheism increased and people became more knowledgeable, atheism and science would replace religion, which is what caused fear. That was their hypothesis, that if we can get rid of religion and all these superstitions and all of these old fables, then fear will go away. And what we'll have is this beautiful time of science and knowledge that will just get better and better, right? Not the first time scientists took themselves a little too seriously. Uh, it was just a, a little side note. Uh, when you think about science, I was reading somebody, they said this recently, the scientists claim that they know how the world came about, how everything around us developed from a single-celled organism, how that organism began to spread, and how all of these processes began to develop, and they can trace it back billions of years, and all of these come up with all these incredible hypotheses, and they want us to believe that, but just ask someone this. If you live every day for the rest of your life, and you eat bacon and eggs, and good healthy butter. Are you gonna be healthy or are you gonna die? We live in the most technological advanced society and for the last 50 years we can't figure out if bacon and eggs is healthy. We've gone back and forth three or four different times. Is it gonna kill you? Is that what you're supposed to do? Is it gonna kill you? Is that what you're supposed to do? It's a silly example but it just shows you so you can tell me where the universe originated and how everything came to be but you can't tell me if eggs and butter are actually gonna kill me or if they're, you have real-time scientific evidence that you can go back and forth with and you still can't tell me what is what. So, uh, it wouldn't be the first time that science has made claims that they ended up looking uh, a bit foolish. So, what happened in Russia? They decided they would take away the fear of God, right? Stalin um, basically made Russia an atheist state and what happened? What ushered in was no longer the fear of God, it was the fear of the state. And historians say it's hard for us to imagine how fearful people were of the government back in that day. So the loss of fear of God has ushered in this age of anxiety. How do we get out of it? So here's what the Bible says, that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So what does that mean? First of all, one thing that it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean a sinful fear, a cowering fear. You've heard Pastor Joe say that, right? Uh, something that would drive us away from God. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, it says that the serpent came and Eve was there and he deceived Eve and she partook of the fruit and says she gave, I noticed this today, she gave to her husband who was there. Very interesting. You always wonder, was Adam there or did he come later on? The plainest reading I could think of seems like he was there quietly, silently, passively. But, uh, of course, instantly they knew then they were naked and it says they were afraid. The first thing that came in was fear. And what did they do? Did they get drawn towards the Lord? No, it says they, they fled. They hid themselves. They made themselves coverings of skin. So there is a sinful type of fear that comes from not knowing 
the Lord well, and Satan loves to promote the fear uh, that makes people flee, that makes people go away from the Lord when something like that happens. Satan's work is to promote a fear of God that makes people want to flee because they're afraid. The opposite of that, the Holy Spirit produces a fear that drives us towards the Lord, and that's what we're going to look at here tonight. So godly fear rises in the context of God's power, his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. It's not to be some passionless, vague um, thing. It's supposed to be strong, overpowering. It's supposed to be a reaction, right? When you're scared, when you're afraid of something, that God's put that inside of us to, to when fear is generated inside of us, that's meant to wake us up and help us respond to something. And so here... I think that's why the translators use that word here, that this awe or reverence or being in the presence of the Lord is meant to be something that's strong, something that is um, awakened in us, not supposed to be passionless or vague, um, but awe, reverence. One of, the, one of the authors said a fearful joy, a strong joy. Uh, Revelation 15 verse 4 says, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and... Glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Now, there's two types, I think, of this, the fear of the Lord. First of all, we understand God as the creator. You can get this from Proverbs, right? Uh, The fear of God as a creator. We look around at everything that's been created, and we realize a couple things. Wow. Number one, I'm pretty small and insignificant. In light of everything that's been created, uh, this is pretty incredible. You look at the magnificence, you look at how God has created everything. It does a couple things. Number one, it brings our eyes off of ourselves. And number two, it leads us away from being self-obsessed. It gives us a good, healthy humility. So we can understand God as the creator, even from the book of Proverbs or from the Old Testament. But the best thing, and I think this is where I want to go tonight, is understanding God, the fear of God, not only as the creator, but also as the Redeemer. And that's why I would say to you, it's great to be in the book of Proverbs, and on any given day, you kind of have some place to go, but you never want to go more than a couple weeks without being in one of the Gospels. You never want to go long periods of time without, in your Bible, reading those red letters and understanding the core and the center of it. Because we can understand God's creator. There's lots of even unsaved men that believe intelligent design but they're not born again. They're not saved. But when you understand God as the creator and as the redeemer, you kind of get the full picture. And when you understand God as the redeemer, then you can go back and you appreciate God the creator even more, right? Because then you know how, who God is, how much he loves for us, he cares for us, he understands our fallenness and our sinfulness, and he also created the universe and everything around us. We should be the most appreciative people on the planet when it comes to looking at the creation and appreciating God and what he has created. So having the right knowledge of God leads us to having the right fear of God, an all-powerful creator, and a merciful redeemer. So here's what I want to do. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. You can go to chapter 3.
So the premise was basically this. We can understand God as the creator in lots of different places in the Bible. To understand God as the redeemer, you have to jump into one of the Gospels, and you have to look at the life of Christ. In Exodus chapter 3, of course, God comes to Moses in the burning bush and tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. And Moses, you guys know the interaction, but he says, well, who should I say sent me when they ask? And God goes back and forth, but then he says, I am that I am, which means the ever-present or the ever-existing one. And one of the great things about the New Testament in the Gospel of John is John picks that up and he quotes Jesus seven different times where he uses that I am statement. And so uh, what I want to do tonight is I want to look at ten different things just from the Gospel of John that helps us understand God as the Redeemer And we put that together with our knowledge of God as the creator, and that develops a fear, a healthy fear of God, right? We all know we need that. We need to have a healthy fear of God. We know we don't need to cower and be afraid of him, but we do need a robust and vibrant fear of God. So number one, that comes from understanding that he has created everything, and we are tiny and insignificant in that one sense. He's the creator, but... We are ultimately significant in the fact that he knows us so well and what he did on our behalf. So that comes not from studying the book of Proverbs, but from studying the Gospels. Because to know the Father is only revealed by the Son. Right? says that over and over again. So uh, hard task, right? We could be here all night trying to think through these things. I just picked 10. I picked them from the Gospel of John to sort of go in order. Um, So John chapter 3, verse 12. So what we're trying to do here is just think through God as the Redeemer, as revealed by the Son. So John chapter 3, verse 12 says, If I have told Jesus speaking here to Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So we begin to just get a glimpse of who God is. And one of the first things we see just as clearly as the Bible can say it is that God understood us and in his mercy would send his only son to be a lifeline for us. So we, got, we know God in his magnificence, his creation, and now his redemption. He knew that Adam was going to sin. He knew that Eve was going to give the fruit to Adam, that sin was going to enter the world, and we were going to need to be purchased back with a price. And so he sent his son. Now, turn to John chapter 6, verse 35. Now we get into the first of the seven times where Jesus here is going to use this phrase, I am. And this one we just looked at with Pastor Joe. Of 
course, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. And many of these scenes here where he's going to use these, these I am's are going to be around things that people would never forget. These were life-changing experiences that 50 years after this, people would remember. Remember that day we were sitting on there and Jesus just began to break the loaves and break the fish and they just multiplied and multiplied. And in the midst of that, on the next day, he says, Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen, uh, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So again, we're just adding to this understanding of who God is, that he would send his son to redeem us, that the greatest need in life is not physical. These guys were coming because they wanted more bread. And Jesus says, don't go after the physical. There is something more important. There is a spiritual side to every man. And Jesus says, any man who comes... To me, I will not cast out. And I love this in verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, John chapter 7, verse 37. So there's three of these that aren't the I am's. John 3, John 7, John 12. I just couldn't pass them up. John chapter 7, verse 37. And on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See how open the invitation is so far? God would send his only son. If anyone will come and believe, I'll give him everlasting life. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. And out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. That's who God is. If we don't understand who God is, we're going to have a wrong concept and thus a wrong fear of God. And again, by fear, I don't mean that God scares us. I mean a reverence and an awe and a passion that is strong. And the idea is that when we read these things, they should elicit in us a joy, a reverence, an awe, something strong like a fear. Now, John chapter 8. Here's another one of the I am's. I'm just going to set up the scene rather than reading the first couple of verses. It says there was a woman there who was caught in adultery. It says in the very act And it says the religious leaders at that time took her and brought her to the public square. Of course, you guys know the the punishment for that was death. Of course, the other obvious thing for anybody that reads the Bible is where was the guy, right? So we know that this is not totally above board. We know that uh, there is a lot of darkness in this scene. Imagine being here about to watch an execution right in front of you. That's literally what's about to happen. Imagine the scene here. And no doubt some of this is shady. Where's the guy? 
Why are they doing this? Right? So we pick it up in verse 7. And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she, imagine the scene, said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Tells us a couple things. Number one, we live in a dark world. There are some messed up things that go on in the world around us. This was an intense scene. There was darkness on a lot of different angles. There was a lot of different sin involved with a lot of different people. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And that is the idea that in the midst of all of that darkness, there is a light that you can navigate off of that doesn't change, that is righteous and just and equitable in the midst of everything else. It says, I am the light of the world. That even though the world is a dark place, he overcomes that. Now, John chapter 10, our next I am statement. There's actually two of these right here in this section. The first one, Jesus says, I am the door. And then a little later, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the analogy he's using here uh, back in this day when the shepherds would take their flocks out into the fields at night rather than coming back into the town, they would set up a, um, a they would build like a little um, pen or, you know, uh, get some things to kind of corral the sheep. And instead of making a door, the shepherd would then just lay down. It was temporary. They were out in the fields. They were moving around. He would just make something temporary to keep them together at night. And then instead of having a door, he would just lay right there, <laughs> basically saying, you're not going anywhere unless you come over me. And that was the way that the shepherd then would watch over the sheep. Jesus picks up on this. Look at verse 7. And Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Just like that shepherd would lay down in front of the... To, uh, to close in that enclosure. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they ha may have it more abundantly. I think there's two things here that we can look at. First is that door gives the idea of separation, in and out. It's not everything is just one big field. Not everything is just one big enclosure. No, there's inside, there's outside, there's a door. And that door necessitates a decision, separation, a choice. And then the other thing he says here in verse 10 is that there is real freedom. He says, there's a thief that has come and all he wants to do is to kill and to rob and to destroy. But I've come that they may have life 
and that they may have it more abundantly. And the idea of that is that there's freedom. And that doesn't mean that freedom doesn't mean you just can do whatever you want whenever you want. Freedom is doing what you were designed to do, what God created you to do. So we see here that God allows people to make a choice. He is the door. There is a separation. He offers true freedom for people. And there's a choice. There's a thief that wants to kill and rob and destroy. And there is a shepherd who wants to give true freedom. Now, the second one is right after it, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, which was just a a shepherd that worked for money, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, notice this, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus says something remarkable here. He says, I give my life not in place of the sheep, for the sheep. I lay my life down like a shepherd, a true shepherd would. I am willing. And then he says something remarkable. He says, I have the ability to lay it down. No man takes it from me. We're going to look at the cross a little bit later, how the Romans were there, the Jews were there. There were lots of people involved, but he says here very clearly, it's my choice. I lay it down. I could take it up again. I have the choice, the good shepherd. Now, turn to John chapter 12. This is the last of the three non-I am statements. Actually, I'm sorry, there's one more. But this one, again, is just important. And again, this is just building in who is God the Redeemer, that we might fear him properly. But Jesus answered them, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So again, understanding these things and really trying to grasp how much God loves us, how much he was willing to sacrifice for us, elicits in us an awe, a reverence, a strong emotion, a love, a fearful love, as one of those 
author said, as we think through this, as a grain of wheat drops, he said, what am I going to do? Say, save me? This is why I came. This is what I am called to do. John chapter 14, verse 1, probably maybe the most familiar other than John chapter 3. The sixth of the seven I am's. Let not, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. And as Joe's taught us many times, the idea in the Greek is, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, comes down to a decision. He doesn't say, I am a way. He doesn't say, I am one of the truths. I am a way of life. There's a decision. It says, no man has ever come is coming or ever will come to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now, last one, John chapter 15, verse 1. You'll see it right there at the beginning. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. There is a living relationship between us and the God, the creator of the world. He goes on to say, look down at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Stay there. Don't leave. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Again, imagine God saying this. This is what God is like. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. And that gives us a little insight in what it's like to serve, right? Imagine if your, uh, your best friend asks you to be the best man at his wedding, right? That's an honor. You are chosen above everyone else. I want you to be the best man at my wedding. And that usually only requires a couple things, right? Don't mess up the rings and come up with a speech. Now, I've done a fair amount of weddings up here. I've never had a best man say, this is really a drag. These rings are heavy. This is a pain. I've got to carry these things around. No, a best man realizes 
he's standing right next to the groom. He has been chosen above everybody else to be in that place of prominence. It is not a difficult thing for the best man to go around that day and to help and to be with and to spend time with that groom on that day, right? Same idea here. Jesus says, I'm not calling you my servants. You're not just working for me. I'm calling you friends. And it's that same idea. Remarkable. Uh, the friendship that God desires. Now, last one, John chapter 17. Again, this is one of my favorites, and I know Pastor Joe quotes this often. Again, thinking of God as the Redeemer. John chapter 17, verse 20. This is on the night where he is praying. He's about to be betrayed by Judas in the garden. And in, the, in between the Last Supper and Judas betraying him, he prays to his father and he prays for his disciples. And then in verse 20, he shifts and he begins to pray for those who are going to uh, notice this. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through your word. Who are those people that have believed in Christ through the words of the disciples? That would be us, right? So he's praying for us. Look at verse 21. Here's what he prays, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. This is incredible, that you have loved them, us tonight, as you have loved me. Now, look at verse 24. Father, I desire, as Pastor Joe said many times, the only time in the whole New Testament where Jesus says something specific that he desires, right here. I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of of the world. We know a little bit of this emotion. We know what it's like to go somewhere really cool. And one of the first thoughts is, man, I wish this person was with me. This would blow their minds. You guys all had that experience, right? You go somewhere and you think, oh, if this person was here, this, they would flip out, right? We know a small, sinful, just hint of what that's like. Jesus says, the only thing I really want is those who you have given me, I want them to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, all of this. Imagine that's who God is. Now, does that elicit from us a fear of God's this big, mean ogre in the sky who's going to zap us with lightning? Or does that elicit a strong emotion of, that's incredible, that's awe-inspiring, that is reverential, that, that gives us the desire to say whatever you want. So as God reveals himself to us through his son, he sends his son to show the world what the father is like. We just looked here at a small handful of just those things. Um, now, let me just put a sort of a, a bow on top of this. And I, I ventured out from the book of John here just a little bit, but I want to just give you the last five or six things that happen right after this. Right from this, Jesus goes into what they call the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys know the story, right? And it says he's troubled, and he takes Peter, James, and John. 
He leaves the disciples, he takes those three a little farther, and then he goes a little farther still, and he begins to pray. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Another very interesting prayer. Just like this in chapter 17 was the only time he said, I desire something. Chapter 18, and when Jesus goes into the garden, is the only time Jesus prays something that really isn't answered in the affirmative. He says, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. And says, there's... He doesn't say, but the, the intimation is that there's silence. He prays it a second time. Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Of course, the second part of it is what? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it says he prays it a third time. And he comes back, and the disciples are sleeping. And it says at that moment, the soldiers come from the temple with a detachment of troops And it says Judas is leading him, and Judas had given them the signal to say, whomever I kiss, that's the one, seize him. And they say, and Jesus confronts them and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. He says, I am he. And it says there's something happens supernaturally at that moment. All of the soldiers fall down. When he just says, I am, they all hit the ground. Must have been a very awkward moment. Of course, they get back up. We know Peter goes for his sword, right, which he apparently had just gotten, draws his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus looks at him and says, put your sword away. He heals Malchus's ear and he says, don't you understand, if I wanted to, I could pray and God would send 12 legions of angels to finish this right here, right now. You go back to John chapter 10, he says, no man takes my life. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up. So he willingly allows them there in the garden to take him. He, is, um, he has made that decision, God's will, to drink the cup. He then goes before three or four different trials, right? He goes before Annas and Caius, Caiaphas, then he goes before Pilate, then he goes before Herod, then he goes back before the religious leaders, back to Pilate. All of those things, you think, what is going on? And then you realize a couple thousand years before that, God had told Moses, the sacrificial system, that they were to take a lamb and take that lamb that was without spot or without blemish, examine it, make sure that it was without spot or blemish, and use that as the sacrifice, right? Unbeknownst to any Jew in that day that that Symbolism And that lamb would look forward to that night as he was examined. The lamb was taken before Annas and Caiaphas. They, he was lied about. He was beaten. He was taken before Pilate. He was then taken before Herod where he was mocked. He was brought back to Pilate with the religious leaders there. The Romans, of course, scourged him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. All of those things, of course, looking for him to confessed, looking to him to admit guilt. And all that time, Isaiah 53 would prophesy 600 years before that, as a lamb before his shears was silent, so he opened not his mouth. Incredible. He was then taken out to be crucified, where he was crucified with two thieves, one on either side. He said several different things in that moment. The first thing he said is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Incredible. One of the thieves, actually both of the thieves begin to mock him. They begin to uh, berate him verbally. At some point, one of the thieves realizes 
something. Something happens to him. And he looks at Jesus and he says, he looks at the other thief. He says, what are we doing? We are guilty. We deserve to be here. He's obviously done nothing wrong. And he looks at him and says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says to him the second thing. He says, today, surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He then looks at his mother and he looks at the apostle John. He says to John, behold, your mother. I want you to take care of her. And says to Mary, behold, your son. And then, of course, it says that the sun goes out from noon to 3 p.m. For three hours, darkness, it says, covers the whole earth. And in the midst of that, at the end of that, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, In that moment, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. The sin of the world was placed upon the Son, and for the first time in eternity, the Son and the Father had been separated. Now there was sin. My sin was separating the Son from the Father and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then three rapid statements in a row. He says, I thirst. He asked for a sponge to loose his tongue, and he said then to Telestai, It is finished, paid in full. And as Joe has said many times, he said that before he died physically. It wasn't his physical death that sealed it. It was what he had paid for on the cross to tell us die, paid in full, finished before he died physically. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down. I have the power to, to raise it up, and I have the power to lay it down. The last thing he says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And one of the most incredibly symbolic thing happens right then. The temple, which had been designed as a place for people to come and worship God, which had a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the place where God, his presence dwelled, all of a sudden ripped. It says there was an earthquake. It says the centurion that was sitting at the foot of the cross looked at him when he died said, surely this was the Son of God. And it says there was an earthquake and the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom. And just incredible symbolism signifying that the whole Old Testament system is now wide open, that anyone can come into the presence of the Lord through this one sacrifice, this one mediator that now had sealed our redemption. He had purchased us back. And then, of course... We don't want to forget the, the conclusion, right? Three days later, the resurrection, he comes to the women, and Mary, it says, when she realizes it's the Lord, she falls down and she clings to him, and he says, don't cling to me, but go to my brethren and tell them uh, that I go to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. He institutes this new closeness in this relationship. He tells the guys, or he tells uh, the women, go tell the guys their father, their God. And Hebrews says now, of course he ascends into heaven, now he is seated at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us, waiting for that day where he will return to set up his kingdom. So how do we produce then this fear of the Lord? Just wrapping this up. How do we produce or cultivate or increase our fear of the Lord? What does that do for us? Number one, it gives us 
knowledge. We understand God not only as the creator, but as the redeemer. Secondly, it changes us. It produces real fruit in our life. That should have an effect on us. That's why they describe it as fear, as awe, as reverence. That should produce something. A little later, Proverbs chapter 16 says, it purifies us. It has an effect on our life. And what's interesting is the fear of the Lord leads to an uplifting and vibrant life. You would think if somebody was, again, this is why people misunderstand the word fear. If you think of someone that's fearful, you think of someone that is gloomy or depressed or uh, down, right? The fear of the Lord is someone who is uplifting and vibrant and active and in awe. And it also produces a very, very healthy humility. You understand God's the creator, that we are just simply a creation, but you understand we're not just a creation. We are his creation. We are different than everything else that's been created. We are created in his image that he went through all of those things I just read through to purchase us back because we were that valuable to him. And that's why we then can be a light in the midst of a fearful generation, a generation that's scared of everything that's out there. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of that. The fear of the Lord is a reverent, a holy, a we have our priorities in the right place. We're not worried about those things because when you understand how much God loves you and how powerful he is and all the things that he has done for you, that directs so much of your attention that those other things get put in their proper place. So, let me stop there. I hope and I pray if the Lord does tarry, obviously Joe's going to get into just about all of those that we've read through. Uh, obviously, I just gave them just a very short little um, note. Um, but I'm looking forward to the next couple months thinking through all of those I am statements and thinking through um, allowing, asking God to make our fear of him even deeper more legit. So why don't we pray? We'll sing a last song. Have Brian and the guys come up. Why don't we stand? We'll pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word this evening. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, you didn't leave us uh, to try to figure these things out, Lord. You made very clear through your Son, Lord, what you are like, what your heart towards us is, Lord, how much you love us, how valuable we are to you. And, Lord, we just want to have our fear in the right place, Lord. We want to be in awe and reverence of you, Lord. We want to be a light in this generation, Lord. So we pray that you would just honor that, you would bless that, Lord. As we lift our voices to you, Lord, that this would just be the natural reaction, Lord, to understanding your love, your concern, how much you care for us, Lord. So we thank you. We commit it to you, we pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat>